Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 173. This week, we talk with Jennifer Marsman about using machine learning to build a lie detector and other cool ML projects. LinkedIn helps you write your resume. And a free chaos engineering book. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Aspose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DocX, XSLX, PPT, PDF, MSG, MPP, image formats, and many more. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week, we have Jennifer Marsman. She's a principal software development engineer in Microsoft's commercial software engineering group with a focus in data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. She has been featured in Bloomberg for her work using EEG and machine learning to perform lie detection. In 2009, Jennifer was chosen as techie whose innovation will have the biggest impact by Xology for her work with GiveCamps. How's it going, Jennifer? Very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, your uh, your intro, like you, you had... You sent me this like really long version and sometimes people do that and it's all like fluff, but like you had all real things in there. So I feel bad cutting it down because uh, it was just amazing. So people don't really need to hear all of it. It's not that interesting, really. You, you've done amazing work, though. Let, let, I'll just I'll just keep that summary in there. And uh, Ca- yeah, Carl, what do you want to talk about? So uh, we've had a few requests. So we have a, a Slack channel where you can come and talk to us any time of the day or night. Um, and uh We've uh, been given a little bit of information that we have not been inviting enough people. So here's your reminder. You can sign up for this at slack.msdevshow.com, and that will get you to the Slack channel at msdevshow.slack.com. So sign up today. You can send yourself an invite. And also a reminder, we have the amazing uh, Raygun contest. So let us know what your biggest programming fail or the worst bug that you've seen in code. Uh, Just a reminder, you can anonymize everything. We just got a pretty amazing uh, story that came in. He said, please anonymize this, but he gave us the full details in an email. So yeah, don't be afraid. Uh, We do not want to get anybody in trouble. We just want to give away the one year full license for Raygun, as well as the three t-shirt and swag gift uh, boxes that they uh, will be giving out to the three runners up. Yeah. And and we already did have a question about like, can I can I pick something, you know, if I win, can I pick like the swag box, you know, if I already have Raygun and, uh, I don't know, I haven't asked Raygun, but sure. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, so, you know, you have some options. I think what we'll do is whoever, whoever is first, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go down the list and, and they'll get priority in, in what they, if they want the swag box or the, or the license. Uh, okay. So let's move on to the comment of the week. So this week, the comment of the week gets a developer small business license for Expose.total for .NET, which includes all of the Expose.NET products in one package. And we got our comment this week off of Twitter from Dan Barkwell. Um, uh, two episodes ago, when we were talking to Ryan Nowak, I had mentioned that I had used a, or I do use a dial when developing, and he wanted to know how I use it for developing. So uh, by default, a, a dial can scroll and it gives really nice fine grained precision. So if you have like a, a big file or something, it's easy to either like spin through it real fast or go through it uh, with a lot of control. But in addition, there is a, uh, a Visual Studio extension by Nico Vermeer, uh, Microsoft MVP, who uh, will, when you're debugging, let you step through your code. 
And the one thing that's really cool is with Visual Studio 15.5, you can go backwards now. So I'm waiting for him to update that extension so I can go forward and backward in my code with my dial. So you'll be like, so (laughs) that'll be awesome. It's like a, it's like a, it's a time machine dial. (laughs) Yeah. And if you want to get mentioned on the show, like Dan did, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We really like those five-star iTunes reviews. And if we do get your pick something that doesn't have an email address on it, please send me your email address afterwards if you're a winner. I need those to give to a suppose to get you your license. So if you've won in like the last four or five weeks, I, I need your email address. Oh, and just to close out the the contest that we mentioned earlier through Raygun, uh, so the deadline's going to be December 1st. So make sure you don't procrastinate. Get those in as soon as possible. Uh, okay, so let's jump into the news. So let's see, what do we got here? Microsoft integrates LinkedIn with Word to help you write a resume. This is pretty cool. I, I, I think this is just makes a lot of sense. The, the last two uh, jobs that I've uh, applied for, I actually didn't even have my resume. I said, well, I did have a resume, but first I said, here's just my LinkedIn. It has all my information. It has all my previous uh, employers. It has my experience. It has all the stuff that I'm going to put on a resume anyways, mm-hmm. except for my contacts, but no. we don't need those. Yeah. So I think this is really cool. It's just one way for you to automate and get half that stuff imported into uh, what you're, what you're going to have to do anyways. And with uh, the other technologies, I I, I don't know uh, um, if word has this, but you know, on PowerPoint, you can write a slide and it says like, make this better. I can't wait for word to do that with resume with this. (laughs) So it's pretty much you import it and you just make it better. And you're just like, all right, yeah, there I'm done. So what's cool about this too, you can put in your, your role in industry. And I mean, you could, this thing doesn't do anything that you really couldn't do before, but what it'll do is it'll go out and fetch some impactful statements for you uh, that you could potentially use as inspiration. Um, I I never recommend anybody lie on their resume. I hope that this doesn't lead to people being like, hmm, I, you know, I didn't grow the business by $50 million, but that sounds cool. You know, so they're like (laughs) adding it in. So I'm hoping that that doesn't happen. Uh, but being able to, to, you know, sort of look at those impactful statements and, and figure out how to word your resume could be really useful. Cause you know, we had an entire episode on this and people are just, they're just terrible. You know, even if they're like great at what they do, a lot of times they're just terrible at, uh, at conveying that on, on a resume. And it's, it's really a shame because it, you know, they're missing out. Yeah. I think the other thing is that once you've been in the industry for a while, like you forget, like I, like the, the people that you worked with, uh, you know, three jobs ago or in kind of the stuff that you did. So that makes it really nice to just like, as long as if I, you know, if I keep it all up to date in LinkedIn, then bam, I'm done and I'm good. Yeah. And I can just dump it to a resume at any point. That's really cool. Yeah. LinkedIn would, has been my system of record. Yeah. And I love just like from the machine learning aspect of it, that is is really cool. There's actually a company called Texio and it was started by two former Microsoft employees actually. And what they do, it's kind of the opposite side of the coin, but instead of helping people write resumes, they are helping people with job descriptions in order to try to make it um, more uh, to get people more people to apply for jobs so they use machine learning yeah and they actually record like who clicks on which links like that Mm. sort of thing and who applies for what jobs and then uses analyzes the text in there to see you know what jobs are attracting more people because there's words that fall in and out of favor like a couple years ago like big data was the thing and every company was saying oh we do big data until it got like so and and those were more likely to get uh 
to get, for people to apply for them. But then over time, it kind of became passe, and then nobody uses it anymore. So just being able to update models like that on the fly. And then the other thing that's cool is they also do some stuff for um, gender balancing. Like they yeah. keep track of females and males click on these, and if you use different language, they say that that helps show um, get more female applicants or male applicants um, if you're looking, if you're in a situation like nursing where there's fewer males or technology where there's fewer females and you want to try to attract the opposite gender. So really interesting stuff. Yeah, that's actually a great tip because, you know, I'm already aware of certain language, but like, how do you actually apply it? So that's pretty cool that it analyzes and and gives you that feedback. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. Texio.com. Yeah. Okay. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And then does the brain interact with programming languages like it does with natural languages? I've always kind of wondered this. Well, I, if we <clears throat> click into the link from Reddit here, it's mm-hmm. really just a question that starts off a, a Reddit discussion. And there is a little bit of uh, uh, backing uh, um, studies that have uh, been done, but I, I just kind of toss this in here as kind of a, you know, a little exercise because I know throughout the years as I've you know become more adept at development that there's uh, certain languages I really don't have to think, you know, as yeah. as you know, I want it, I want to get something done, you know, the code just kind of appears and then out of my fingertips to the keyboard. Whereas when I'm in other tech, you know, technologies that I might be a little bit newer with, I definitely have to think about the structure and syntax. And, you know, I also kind of equate that where I'm, I'm going to get, uh, you know, I'm not going to get the details of this right, but there's uh, in the English language, if you have adjectives, I think it's adjectives, maybe adverbs, but there's a certain order, like, you know, there's, color and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. If you get those out of order, like it doesn't make sense that everybody always just intuitively gets them right right in order. So I I just think that once you get to a certain level of of adeptness, that your brain probably processes code very similarly. Yeah. And it, I mean, it adapts. Absolutely. I mean, I was having dreams last night about Docker. So, I mean, there's, there's no, (laughs) there's no no doubt of like the, the effect on your, on your brain. And, and it's interesting because they do have some evidence in here about like MRI scans and how it is similar to, in some cases, how to, how language is processed. Um, But, you know, I think this also falls into this thing where they say, what is it? 10,000 hours or, or they say 10 years, you know, to become an expert in something. And I think that's at the point where, you've, you know, your brain has sort of rewritten itself enough to, um, you know, to be optimized for the, for the thing that you're doing. And that's, what's going on here. You know, I still, I don't know a second language, um, um, spoken language. And, uh, you know, what always amazes me is whenever I'm speaking to somebody who their, 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 their first language is not English, you know, like they, I can tell that they're, they're thinking in English, you know, when they're talking to me, um, because at the rate, I mean, you're asking questions or giving immediate responses, whereas, you know, languages that I've started learning, you know, I had Spanish in school and in my head, I'm always kind of like, okay, here's what I want to say. How do I translate it? And I, I think the same thing probably happens with programming languages too. Like here's, here's what I'm trying to do. How do I translate that into code? And then eventually your brain kind of gets to this point where whenever you see a problem, you sort of visualize the answer 
in not not necessarily in code, but in maybe encoding patterns. I don't know. I'm not a yeah. I'm not an expert on this, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating to think about. And when you look at, so I wasn't able to read the article uh, prior to this uh, to this discussion, but when you think about just what artificial intelligence has done and some of the programming constructs that we have there, like the whole idea mm-hmm. behind neural nets too was to try to map, you know, the way the brain processes things, mm-hmm. um, in and use that for machine learning as well. So. Um, it's in some work that I did when I was uh, much younger, actually, it was at a company called Soar Technology. And they also had a programming language that was trying to, uh, you know, map to the brain a little bit more effectively. So it's it is really fascinating the the ways that you can use, talk about like the brain and, and uh, programming together. Cool, cool. OK, running Node.js and, and the Windows subsystem for Linux from Visual Studio Code. What? So I, I found this article really interesting because I had just gotten a question from somebody recently. You know, is, is Windows Subsystem for Linux ready to like run production code on? And uh, like a week after I got that question, we see this here is from Visual Studio Code, you can execute your application directly on the WSL, which I think is really interesting. So it doesn't really answer the other question, but I just think I love how those things are associated. When you you start talking about technology, all of a sudden it just pops up everywhere. Um, Also, if we look at the the comments for this, somebody's like, well, what about Rails? Well, you know, we'll, Will Rails run on WSL? And I love the answer is try it and let us know. Yeah. <laughs> well, because they're because they're operating a totally different level, right? I mean, they're yep. they're adding in the APIs. I mean, it's getting shockingly complete. Um, it's I don't know. It's just super interesting at, at like how how good it is. And then as they implement these APIs, they're just opening up all these scenarios that they can't even really think of. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's no longer a developer uh, hidden behind a developer flag, it's there enabled by default. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really it's going to be really interesting to see where this technology goes in the next release or two of Windows. So speaking of cool stuff in VS Code, um, I'm going to add a surprise article in here. Uh, actually, it's not even an article; it's just a feature. So in VS Code, <laughs> in the latest update for VS Code, there is a cloud shell now for Azure integrated in. So in the in VS Code, if you if you're not familiar with it, you can have like uh, the terminal and console and PowerShell, and you can have all these different tabs at the bottom. Now you can have a cloud shell, which is kind of mind blowing because it saves your context, right? So you can. Uh, you know, you're, you're actually running command lines, like in Linux, like on this other machine. And, uh, it's kind of neat because you could, you can, you know, provision some, uh, some Azure services, for example, from that cloud command line, then you could go on a different computer and like keep working there. And you don't even have to install the tools, nothing. Like as long as you have VS code on there, like you can be using this command line, which is like sort of hard to wrap your mind around that you're, you're, you're in a local machine, like sort of remoted to this other machine running these commands that are affecting this cloud infrastructure. And it's just so cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the visual studio code tools for AI that uh, were released just to add ignite uh, okay. last year or a couple months ago, actually not yeah. that long ago. It's like tools uh, for everything now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great. But, but it's they're, they're, they're the ones for AI are pretty good. Yeah, you can use them to like submit a job. So if you're writing some Python or such mm-hmm. on your machine, you can then just use them to be able to submit the job right up to um, the cloud and be able to run it, you know, in GPUs or, you know, in a Docker container, basically anywhere. So That's they're awesome. really nice. Yeah, yeah, it's cool how it detects now too, like what you're doing. 
Um, you know, I was doing some, some Docker stuff the past couple days and it pops up. It's like, Hey, we got a Docker extension in here. Okay. Install. And then all of a sudden I was getting IntelliSense for Docker. I'm just like, wow, that's, that is such an awesome experience. <laughs> um, I didn't have to like, you know, cause otherwise I wouldn't have realized that there was an extension. And if I did, I'd be like, where do I go get extensions again? And it was just like, yeah. Hey, we can make your life better. Do you want us to yes or no? And why would you uh-huh. pick no? <laughs> Um, and the last one in your chaos engineering book, what's this about Carl? Yeah. So, uh, a few months ago we had Charles Torrey on to talk about chaos engineering. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, uh, it would be a great, just callback to a previous episode. Uh, actually both of us, Jason, we uh, were talking with Charles Torrey, uh, mm-hmm. yesterday and he let us know that he has a book on O'Reilly that's available for free. So, uh, go to the show notes and click on that link and it'll take you to O'Reilly where you can put in your email address and get his book. So if you want to learn more about chaos engineering, uh, go there. If you want to remember what we talked about last time, hit our backlog. Okay. It'd be funny if this page, like, you know, would give random errors and the URL would change. And <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So that's all we had for the news. So let's get over and talk to Jennifer because she's, she's been working on some like really cool stuff. That's uh, kind of mind blowing or mind reading, you know, however you want to say it. So, <laughs> So I guess, um, you know, we've, we've had an episode, we've had actually, I think a couple episodes on machine learning, but it's such a, it's such a huge field and like people, I mean, the, the possibilities in my mind are just, are so endless. I mean, from like stock trading to self-driving cars to like, you know, you're, you're actually like reading minds with it. Like it's, it's just this, this huge thing that's sort of taking over the world very quickly right now. So, um, so that, that, this is just great timing for an episode. Um, so I guess the first thing I would ask, like to you, you know, wh- how do you define machine learning? And then like, you know, are there different kinds of machine learning? Yes, yes, there are. Okay. <laughs> so, um, if, if, if it's the very tough question of like the difference between, um, machine learning, uh, predictive analytics, like statistics and artificial intelligence, you will not even get a straight answer for that from like even experts in the community are still arguing about like okay. where the lines well, are drawn good. between those things. <laughs> so that's that's a kind of a tough one because whatever I answer I give, somebody's going to be mad and say, no, that's not quite right. Um, but let me start by telling you about the different types of machine learning and then we can, we can go from there. But um, there's kind of maybe three main major categories of machine learning. Um, There is unsupervised machine learning, uh, wherein you have like a set of data and then you're able to do things. Well, actually, let me talk about supervised first because then you'll understand unsupervised a little better. Um, There's supervised machine learning. And with supervised machine learning, essentially you have, um, you can use that to do predictive analytics type work. So let's say I wanted to predict the cost of a home. Mm -hmm. Um, What I would need is a whole bunch of data um, with historical values of the cost of homes. So I would need um, both how much these homes cost as well as, and that's what's called my label field, and then a whole bunch of things that affect the cost of a home. So maybe the number of bedrooms, the number of bathrooms, um, the zip code, because location or something can can make a big difference, Um, the number of years since the kitchen's been remodeled, or the size of the master bath, because in the Midwest, we love our huge master bathrooms. Like just things like that, um, that that would affect the cost of a home potentially. Maybe this uh, the rating of the school district, something like that. And so then once you have all that historical data, you know, based on these features, um, uh, it produced those labels, you can apply a supervised machine learning algorithm to do um, to the, that historical data. And essentially all that does is use crazy beautiful math to find the correlations between those features mm-hmm. and that label. And so it really depends um, 
the kind of algorithm you use um, affects the kind of math it is. And um, different algorithms are better based on a number of different factors, like if you want to be able to retrain it and kind of what the data looks like and if it can fit a linear model or not. Um, so the, the algorithm that works best will vary uh, based on the situation. Okay. But there's a lot so of different I, algorithms. They use yeah. different types of math. Yeah, sorry to cut you off, but do, like, do I still Please. do I still have to know the type of algorithm? Because that was to me that was always the biggest barrier uh, to machine yeah. learning. Because you know, it's like okay, I get I get all of this, and I go through, and then it's like, hey, pick an algorithm. I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> okay. Well, one thing I have to mention then is there's a wonderful resource called the Azure Machine Learning Cheat Sheet, okay. and I will give you a link to that because you can uh, download it as a PDF and hang it in your office like okay. all the cool kids do. Um, but it's a really great thing that was put together by um, Brandon, who used to be on the Azure Machine Learning team, a data scientist there, and he uh, he put together essentially like the, the first version was a sort of a flowchart that kind of asked about you know the number of features you have and the the kind of tasks that you're doing and stuff like that and then it kind of uh, mapped you to the best algorithm to start mm -hmm. with so that's a great resource if you don't know a ton you can just try some of those things and then the other thing is just thinking about like there's kind of different categories of learning because you can think about modeling something like that with something as simple as um like a, a linear regression type thing. So if you remember back in like high school math or whatever this was, maybe even middle school, like AX plus BY plus CZ, right? Where it's just a bunch of numbers with weights on them. And so if if all of your data was numeric and you have things like the cost of the home and or the number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, and let's pretend those were all numbers, it may be something as simple as different factors have different weights to them. And it's just the machine learning algorithm just finds those weights that applies to, okay, here's how much the size of a bedroom seems to matter and here's how much the size of a you know the number of bathrooms matters and and that sort of thing and that's one uh really really simple uh way you can do it but as you know like not all data is linear and if you remember just like again high school math um if you you know a linear type stuff can do a straight line but if you want to be able to do things more complex like more complex shapes to like map things you need to get into higher order polynomials right mm -hmm. so if you have your um you know if you want to do any kind of a curve like that you need an x squared plus something right to, so you can model more complicated things with those higher order, order polynomials but again that's just you know the math but anyway you don't really have to know any of that so, what <laughs> I was, so to, to, to back it up a little bit how you how you could do it is um you could kind of think about it like is this you know linear something that could be solved like linearly um and then uh for not if, if it's not i mean so with like neural nets and deep learning and some of the stuff we're doing too um those interact in a way that uh takes care of some of right. those problems and then decision trees as well basically create a little flow chart under the covers that can map something that says you know if I'm trying to predict who uh, would survive and who would die on the Titanic when it sunk, you could, I mean, a decision tree could model that fairly well, where it has a little node where it says, okay, was the person a female? Then yes, they're actually pretty likely to survive. Was it a male? Okay, how much did they pay for their ticket? And kind of break versus on yeah, yeah. first class passengers and third class passengers. So you could actually model that using a decision tree with, with fairly high accuracy. Um, and then there's some other things that are interesting too. When you think about like medical and predicting diseases and such. A lot of times, um, 
you'll find that like the the death rates or the people who really are affected hardcore by some of these diseases are both the very young, right? Babies are particularly susceptible to disease and um, the very elderly um, tend to be very susceptible to disease. And then, you know, regular normal healthy adults are kind of in the middle. So that's always going to be kind of modeled something like that. And you can't fit a straight line to that if you were trying to plot age versus, you know, likelihood of uh of death or something like that, or likelihood to catch a disease or something. Mm-hmm. So just thinking about things like that. But you start with the Azure Machine Learning Cheat Sheet. And then the thing that's nice about like the Machine Learning Studio, for example, is that they have like these 25 different algorithms, all as little modules. And you can very easily drag and drop one in and out to try different algorithms and see which one works the best for your particular data set. Okay. So that's another great way. Raygun gives you Hold on, scrap that. You've heard this ad way too much. Raygun is giving us an awesome chance to give away a free year's startup plan of Raygun crash reporting. In addition, three runners-up will win swag packs that include t-shirts and other freebies. You definitely want some of that. What do you have to do? That's a simple thing. Just let us know. What's the biggest programming fail you've ever seen? What's the nastiest bug you've ever caught? Let us know. Email us at feedback at msdevshow.com. Contest ends at the end of November. Hurry up and get it in now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So as we continue our discussion and as we start looking into machine learning, what what's the key vocabulary that we really need to know? I mean, we, we've talked about like models and training, yeah. but you know, what 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 do we need to know to really get understand this? And we didn't cover um, unsupervised yet. Yes, I'm sorry. I was just thinking that, that <laughs> I, hadn't, I went off onto my my tangent. There, there's so um, much terminology. There is so much terminology. So if if you're doing supervised machine learning, it's good to know. I mean, the, the some people use different things, but I use the term features for the things that predict. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing that you want to try to predict is called your label, mm-hmm. your label field. And with supervised learning, you do need a labeled data set like that, where I have all this data, you know, house data, um, and then the the label of how much the house actually cost. So the cost would be the label, and then everything else that affects the cost of a home would be my features. So features and label are two uh, key things with supervised machine learning and good terms to know. And then... Um, the other uh, unsupervised learning, you don't actually need a label to data set to do unsupervised learning. With unsupervised learning, you can do things like uh, clustering, which is great for things like recommendation engines. If uh, you want to build kind of here are things that are similar to each other, you can choose some kind of uh, thing that relates them and, and figure out which things are similar along various axes and then group like things together, right? So clustering is great. Like if you're trying to recommend restaurants or recommend movies, you could see that, okay, I tend to like things with these characteristics and other things that are close and have similar characteristics I'm probably going to like too. And then the other one is reinforcement learning. And when you look at all of the um, the stuff that was done, like when Google's work with AlphaGo, um, their Go algorithm, that was a very big deal in the machine learning and artificial intelligence community because Go is a very complex game where if you look at the tree of, you know, with chess, it's kind of there's a smaller number of possible moves in any given point. And with Go, the number is just, it's huge. It's right. very complex. And so that's why it was always stated that, oh, this is something that, you know, you would need real uh, human intelligence to solve this uh, just because of the number of possibilities. And um, with what Google was doing with uh, with AlphaGo is something called reinforcement learning. And it's essentially almost like a turn-based type of learning where uh, the algorithm gets a reward every time they, they do something that makes progress towards a goal. Um, and so that way they kind of try to seek the rewards and then um, continue to learn by, by uh, trying to get more points or more rewards essentially. 
Very cool. So, and, yeah, and other, yeah. Other terminology is that is, is other that terminology. Yes. Yeah, so, um, I mean, models are uh, so models are essentially the mathematical models uh, that determine the relationships. In the case of supervised learning, the relationship between those features and that label. So, um, with machine learning, there's kind of uh, if we're if we're doing supervised machine learning, there's two phases to that, right? There's a training phase where I take. Um, I take all of that historical data and I apply the math and that builds a model. The output of that is a model. And basically it's it's some kind of math that finds the relationship between the features and the label. And then there's a second phase, which is when you actually use the the model. And uh, that's, you know, actually at runtime, um, it, you can then call uh, that model giving it only the features. Okay, so for a new house that it's never seen before, you know, here's all this information about the house. And then the model will be able to use what it's learned and um, tell you, okay, here's what I predict how much that house house will um, will cost based on everything I've learned historically. So that's essentially what a model is. Okay. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else, any other big terminology um, models. I mean, super, the different types of machine learning. I mean, there's a lot of different algorithms within each of those categories. Different ways to do supervised and unsupervised, um, but. Let me know if there's anything I say that I didn't explain well enough, and I can I can make sure I define anything as well. Mm-hmm. No, and, and in fact, I, I'm as you're talking, I'm sitting here looking at that uh, cheat sheet that you uh, had mentioned yeah. before, and I, I find it, and, and I find it really useful because you know it, it, in the middle it just has start, and then it's like, what do you want to do? And there's like only like four or five things that you can do with machine learning, right? Yeah, so that so Azure's machine learning doesn't actually include reinforcement learning yet. Um, so that was the, the those are the things that are currently mm-hmm. in Azure machine learning um, that the Azure machine learning studio, and we have some additional tools that were just released at Ignite that that go beyond that um, even more so as well. So that's the machine learning studio. The machine learning studio is awesome if you're a developer, and you know you're trying to you're starting to get into data science, and maybe you don't know you know everything about machine learning yet, but that can give you enough to be really powerful and to do some pretty pretty cool stuff um, with you know not having to understand all of the details mm. and honestly most practitioners of machine learning you have to understand the data science and how to um, do it but we all use libraries too right there's a lot of great libraries mm-hmm. out there so um, you don't want to reinvent the wheel much like you wouldn't um, you know write your own square root function uh, as a developer even though you probably could you're a smart guy but why would you because there's libraries that do that for you. Uh, so it's the same thing with machine learning. There's a lot of great, well-known algorithms and Python libraries and stuff in R as well. Uh, and everyone pretty much just uses those if you're a practitioner. So uh, speaking of being a practitioner of machine learning, you yeah. have uh, built something to tell if somebody is lying. I thought that was really cool. So I was uh, hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, absolutely. So um, what I did was we talked about supervised machine learning, right? And how if I have historical data, um, I can you know make pr- future predictions. And so what I did was I have a headset uh, that can read EEG. And it's made by a company called Emotive, which is a female-founded company. Woohoo! <laughs> and um, it was a really cool thing. And I saw a TED Talk. So the, the founder, uh, Tan Lee, uh, did a, uh, a TED Talk on uh, this headset like way back in like 2010 or something like a really long time ago and I saw the TED talk and I, and I was just like I wanted I was just lusting after that headset so bad I wanted it for ages and then finally we had something where there was a, um our team came into a small hardware budget and anyone and uh, our manager was like does anybody have any hardware requests you know if you will build something cool and talk about it you know we have the tar-. and I'm like 
bam, this is what I want. Um, And so I I got this headset. And so I had all these ideas for like what I could do with it. Um, But what I ended up doing uh, was the trying to solve the problem of lie detection. And it's kind of silly, but, you know, I've heard all that, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not a neuroscientist and I don't claim to be, um, but I did, you know, I did have a master's degree in artificial intelligence and I took like one or two brain science classes when I was in college. And um, I'd heard all the same, like the things that you may have heard too, that polygraphs aren't that accurate. And some, you know, some people don't even trust them in a court of law anymore. And some people do, but there's all this like controversy over polygraphs and whether they're that accurate. And from what little I learned from, you know, my brain science class, um, one of the things I did know was that when you're telling the truth, that activates the recall centers in your brain. And when you're lying, that typically activates the creative centers in your brain. Yeah. So I started thinking, okay, if I have this headset that's reading from these, you know, it actually reads from 14 different points on the scalp. uh, If I have that information, like, could I be able to distinguish between truth and a lie? It seems like you maybe could, right? Mm-hmm. So I did uh, my first uh, guinea pig for this work was my husband, <laughs> my poor sainted husband. <laughs> so I put it on him. Was he sweating? I, or I know, not. yeah, seriously. <laughs> Do you have an Ashley Madison account? Tell me. Um, but he was uh, he was a great sport about it. And I, I put it on him and I asked him um, a series of questions that I did know, like the correct answers to yes or no type questions. And... Um, I was collecting his EEG data through all of this. And so I first I had him tell me the truth and then I made him lie to me. And so what that gave me is a labeled data set of here's, you know, EEG signals and these correspond to truth. Truth would be my label. Truth or lie are the two labels, the things I'm trying to predict. And then I had all this data for here's what his brainwaves look like when he's telling the truth. And then here's what they look like when he's lying. And so from that, you can just feed it into a machine learning algorithm and build a classifier to perform lie detection. You're, so so, you're just like, and then yeah. I just feed it. In. Yeah, so it's easy. just it's, uh, like, from there. <laughs> I can't believe you, right? I'm the only one that's doing this. <laughs> well, I actually looked. I like as a good little yeah. like, former grad student, it's like there's someone's always already done yeah. something. And I did find some research that was out there on this thing called the P300 ERP. And ERP stands for event related potential. And it's a different way to process EEG that kind of filters out a little bit more of the noise. And I guess that there have been some government agencies and such that are doing a little bit of work around <laughs> this. But instead of acting um, asking questions like I was doing, I was kind of like trying to duplicate like a polygraph type experience where I was yeah. asking questions and getting answers. What they did um, is that this P300 ERP is a little, essentially it's a a little dip. You can see the little waveform um, that occurs um, for recognition. It basically is like a spark of recognition. Mm. And so imagine you're like walking through a crowd of people at a conference or something and you see a face and your your brain does that. Ooh, I know that person from somewhere. Like that's the P300 ERP response. And so... um, then what what they were doing was actually using a, a vision-based test where they would put an EEG reader on someone and they would hold up a bunch of pictures in front yeah. of them and then see if that response happened. So you could have a whole bunch of very neutral or innocent images and then, you know, a picture of the crime scene or a picture of the murder weapon or something like that. <laughs> and so if that person had intimate knowledge of those things or had seen them before, that, that P300 ERP reaction would, would, would 
dip or that you'd see that little waveform. And so then they could, you know, find out those correlations. So it was really, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting, the brain is so fascinating because there's still so much we don't know about it. So it's been really fun work and I've been able to, you know, present and uh, connected with, you know, I'll get all these really fascinating conversations with people that come up to me afterwards who um, are actually, you know, you know, I've had some neuroscientists come up and talk to me and it's always just a really interesting conversation where, you know, it's, it's so, so cool. And then the medical applications are neat too. When you think about all the brain related diseases that we have and folks with seizures and uh, folks with um, other, uh, you know, neurological things, um, people have come up to me and asked, you know, could this help my child? You know, if I put this on them, could we predict when an episode is going to occur or something mm. like that? And I don't know, but like the medical ones are the, always the, any kind of health related things are the ones that always, you know, get me the, yeah. they're so being able to use technology and machine learning to make such a tangible difference in people's lives is really like, yeah. So tell me about so this amazing. headset. So I looked, it looks like you can have your very own for what? $800. Yes, mine is the eight hundred dollar version. It's actually cheaper than and what I expected. Yes, it's under a thousand dollars. for a, for like, a mind reading not, device. <laughs> yeah, it's not that expensive. Um, um, yeah. And if you yeah, if you want to get just the headset by itself, that's like I think two or three hundred dollars US US dollars. Mm-hmm. And then if you want um, the headset plus the developer SDK, mm-hmm. that is five hundred dollars. And then if you want the headset plus the developer SDK plus um, access to all of the raw EEG data, and that's what I wanted, that was $800. Okay. So I have the $800 version, but again, it's less than $1,000, which is pretty impressive. So and I actually thing... read a paper. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it looks like, so it has, a, does it have a dongle and it's Bluetooth then? You can use either Yeah, one. it's a dongle. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's a, a sim, I thought they were using kind of their own proprietary. Yeah, it's a, it says proprietary. proprietary it's not it's quite Bluetooth, but it's kind of, it's, it's basically like Bluetooth, but I think it's their own proprietary yeah. like wireless it says that format, both. I think. So it looks like you yeah, can just okay. use regular Bluetooth as well. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've used it presenting. I have had issues a couple times, like if I'm presenting on a big stage with a ton of equipment and stuff, and you know how Bluetooth can sometimes go a little fritzy when you have a, just a ton of signal from everywhere mm-hmm. around. But for the most part, it's been a it's been a very reliable. I've actually been impressed with how reliable it has been and how well it's worked and. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's it's a really cool device, and I, I actually read something. I was doing reading some papers and stuff on the um, various EEG uh, devices, and that one is um, supposed to be one of the best in terms of value, meaning the quality of the signal versus how much you pay for it. Um, the, that ratio, uh, it, it was one of the strongest. Um, there's other ones out there that I haven't tried, so I can't give like honest feedback on them. But I think NeuroSky and Muse, and there's some other things out there. But I've been really happy with the emotive one. They have another one too, actually. Okay. I have the the Epoch Plus. Is yeah, the I saw the, that like I have. a simpler one. So yeah, like how yeah. clean is the the data coming off of that? Because like I've I've worked with um, like accelerometers, and okay. you know they're reporting data like you know 200 times per second, and it's you know when you move your arm like the accelerometer data is just like ooh like all over the place. So like yeah. like what does the data of this look like? I mean, is it the same thing where it's kind of flying all around and it's hard to interpret? You know, using vision. Yeah. So EEG is very messy data as well. Okay. Yes. And and it's really interesting because one of the things, if you look at the developer SDK, one of the things they do is they actually have events for like 
uh, left blink and right blink and um, smiling <laughs> and one other thing. So you can actually pick up facial movements as well. And so like if you actually go and make all kinds of yeah. crazy facial expressions and touch or scratch your face um, while it's doing, you will see spikes in the data. Your husband walks like, in even like, touching your like face. hitting yourself yeah. and like messing with your face. Uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, I'm working. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, it does. I've done that like live at con- like giving the talk. I've been like, look, you know, see all the crazy stuff that happens. So th- it's very noisy data because just facial movement will create additional waves. So when I was doing the initial work with my husband, um, I had to kind of arrange the experiment to try to mitigate some of that. Um, I actually, I had him sitting where I made him close his eyes. And that was for two reasons. Number one, um, and I, I didn't want him touching his face or anything. I made him don't touch your face or anything. You just have to, you know, <laughs> so you, very so calm. So you handcuffed him, made him close and, his eyes. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and then made him lie to you. <laughs> um. But when you do that, uh, that that will affect the data. I just wanted okay. really clean data for the initial, you know, experiments and to build a training set. And so, when I did that, I, I collected it and, and was able to get that. And then also because I didn't want him reading the questions like over my shoulder because I was asking right. him a series of questions, and I was also um, annotating the data at the same time so that when I would start to ask a question, he would. Um, he would reply. I was trying to, you know, there's all this data that's being taken continuously and I wanted to just be able to yep. slice out here's there, exactly yeah. where he's processing and thinking about the the answer to that question. And so um, I used uh, that information too. And if, I, if he was able to read the questions over my shoulder, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, pinpoint as exactly like when he was thinking mm-hmm. about his response. So well, I saw one of these yeah. devices at like CES and I think it might have been around like 2010 or maybe a couple okay. of years after that. Okay. But like yeah. they, they had it hooked up and, and it was, they were trying to get people to like change channels on a TV. Um, like, is it, is yeah. it pretty, um, like, is it reliable for doing something like that where you can sort of think of a certain thing or in a certain way and, and like, like, you know, send out a, a signal reliably? Yeah. Great question. Um, the answer is if it's a binary signal, that's easier, much, much easier to okay. do. Um, I have a demo that I will do on stage um, and that I'm comfortable doing on stage because I can do it fairly reliably. And that is making a cube move with your mind. Okay. And um, it's it's a really cool, I mean, it's very visually exciting. And that was actually what they did during the TED Talk that made me be like, oh, I need to buy one of these right now <laughs> because I need to be Jean Grey before I die and move <laughs> something with my mind at least once um, to have a complete and fulfilled life. So um, when I did this, um, I find that if it's just a binary thing, so either you're not making the cube pull or you are making the cube pull, um, it's pretty easy to force your mind into distinct states. So when they, um, when you, when you're training the cube to do this, it actually brings up a little thing and has you, have you just, you know, record your brain at West because our brains all have unique signatures, much like we all have unique fingerprints. Um, everyone's brain has a unique signature. And so noise profile. Exactly. Exactly. So that way you kind of, uh, it records your brain at rest for a second to kind of get that neutral base state. And I always just kind of try to go Zen and go to my happy place and just completely relax during that point. And then, um, you record something, your brain thinking something, um, during the pulse. So there's another eight second record time. Um, and so in your mind, you could be thinking, I always think pull, pull, you know, or one long pull, like when I'm doing that. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have to be the word pull. You know, you could be thinking hamster dance, but as long as you think the same thing consistently, <laughs> when you want that cube to pull, it should work because it's just pattern matching. Right. Yeah. And so I will train it to, um, and, and I usually try to get into a very excited state where I'm thinking pull with, you know, high energy kind of thing so that it's a very distinct on off thing. And that way then I just, you know, force myself into an excited state and then, um, that will make 
make the cube pull and then I can make it stop just by relaxing my mind a little bit. But when you're trying to do um, additional things, because I've tried training it on more advanced things where let me try to make it pull and turn and, you know, rotate or, you know, go back. And to do that is a lot more difficult because mm-hmm. you have to be able to force your mind reliably into, um, you know, three, four different uh, distinct states, right? And that can be hard um, just to control your thoughts. Well, especially while you're on and, stage. Like, I mean, talk about noise then in yeah. your brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's... So- um, yeah, going back to your 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 lie detecting piece, though, yeah. you know, considering that you were trying to compare it to a polygraph, did you, did you have you know get any kind of numbers comparing your your accuracy to a average polygraph accuracy? Yes, I did look up those numbers. Um, so my the I think the average polygraph accuracy a number that I read for that was sixty five percent, which is sounds fairly low, and yeah. um, uh, so and again. I have the source written down somewhere, but um, it's, you know, everyone says such different uh, varying things about polygraphs. Yeah, how do, how do you know. test it? It's hard to know what to truth. trust, right? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like food. I feel the same way about anything food. It's like everything is, this is bad for you. Oh, this is good for you. Um, and I just, I don't know. But um, <laughs> with poly uh, with polygraphs too, it, so 65% is one number that I've heard. And um, my algorithm, uh, so some of the initial stuff with my husband were basically all I was trying to do was differentiate between his truth data and his lie data. It wasn't like a um, mm-hmm. thing. Um, but I got fairly good um, numbers on that one. Um, and then what I'm trying to do now is to uh, make it generalize and work on anyone. Um, because right now, like I've actually done it on my my manager as well. Mm-hmm. And I was so lucky because uh, our team actually had an offsite. And so we were all meeting together. And this was the year when we had um, a Channel 9 video requirement. So we had to produce a certain number of Channel 9 videos a year. Um, and so the, our marketing team had actually bought a camera crew to our offsite. So there's all these camera guys around, like just in case anybody felt like recording a video um, to help us with this metric and so I was like oh you know it would be fun (laughs) and I like grabbed a cameraman and I grabbed my manager and I was like remember that uh, expensive piece of hardware that you let me buy well I've been doing something with it would you mind if I just (laughs) recorded you know asked you some questions wearing this and recorded (laughs) it and he was like yeah sure that sounds whatever and so oh my gosh it ended up being so funny because I I put the headset on him and um, asked him a bunch of questions and I asked him a whole bunch of like truth and you know telling him to tell me the truth and then had him lie to me to get again that training data um so that i understood what his brain looked like when he was telling the truth and what it looked like when he was lying and then i asked him a bunch of just like silly questions around you know is microsoft the best company in the world to work for and (laughs) am i gonna get a promotion this year and that sort of thing and so it was very it was just very funny and it um just his responses were very funny as well so and just having it captured on uh, camera was just priceless so yeah so that actually brings up a good point. So you, um, so in in your software, then, so you, did you you built it so that you could train it on the fly, then as well? Yeah. So what I'm doing right now, it's a bit of a manual process. Okay. So uh, I have to there, and, and part of it is the tool. So I'm I'm collecting it using a tool made by Emotive called TestBench, mm. and then they have a uh, a tool. Uh, uh, they actually store the data in a proprietary format, but then they have a converter inside of TestBench that. Uh, converts it to CSV. And then uh, Azure Machine Learning uh, supports CSV just fine. So I was using the Azure Machine Learning Studio uh, to do this work. And so um, 
what I did is I have to actually take the data and then run that converter real quick and then do it. So I don't have like a real time end to end system where I could just put it on you live right now and then ask questions and get the response in real time just because there is that one manual step. And um, I've actually been going back and forth with emotive support on this because um, they said that, hey, there's this thing and that it was a command line thing. But um, I think they ended up baking it into the tool and there's not a command line version of that converter. And I'm, I keep asking, can I please have that? Because then I could have this be a real time, like fun thing. Yeah. You get to say train and then yeah, hit some buttons. Right. While talking. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So the training, so, but that's the thing is I don't want to have to train it individually on each person. Like my goal would be, is there a way to normalize mm-hmm. the data across all people so that maybe I could do maybe a really quick training or something to get that baseline, just like I did with the emotive other thing, and then be able to use an existing model. Um, to be able to figure that out because it's almost like this when you think about it in the core it's it's a lot like speech recognition right mm-hmm. like all of us have different voices with different pitches and timbers or whatever the vocal terms are mm-hmm. but um we still are saying the same words and a speech recognition uh, program can can pick up, even though we have different voices, it can yeah. pick up on those things because it's been normalized. That data has been normalized across a, a variety of different people. And it's really the same thing with brainwaves because it's the same thing. It's it's time series, you know, waveform type yeah. data. Um, and I'm getting it from these 14 different channels on the brain. But then if I can take that and normalize it across different people and different brains, then I should be able to use one classifier to detect, you know, general purpose lie mm-hmm. detection anyone and that would be really cool yeah but are the are the brain areas the same in every person i mean i've Um, seen i've seen like the classic classic maps where it says you know this is here this is here this is response over this i wasn't sure how consistent that was yeah so my understanding is that you know the you know basic things like speech processing and um you know your long-term memory and storage and stuff are all all that is consistent across people um but there are just different uh the noise comes in with just kind of what the rave, the waveforms look like and what your brain at rest looks like and that sort yeah. of thing. Well, and then different. if you find like a psychopath, it'll be different. <laughs> yeah, there that very well could be. I have not yeah. done any psychopath. Because like their heart rate tends to, tends to be like I can lend low, you Jason yeah. for a little bit. And they're not yeah. very Thank excitable. <laughs> I don't know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm very excitable. Um, what um, <laughs> what are some other cool ML projects that uh, that you've worked on as well? Because, I mean, this is just one of many. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much cool stuff out there, honestly. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things with, um, a lot of projects lately that I've seen around, um, uh, product placement on shelves that one of my colleagues did some work, um, on this like last year. Um, and, uh, and do you know, you know, Ari Bernstein? Do you know him? No. He's okay. All right. Okay. He's 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 on our extended team. Okay. Um, but you know he he's done something, and I've I've done similar work um in that area where essentially um there are these companies, and let's say that they are uh, looking to do um uh uh correlations uh, or so distributors sell things to mm-hmm. a large group. So imagine you are you know any kind of person that you know sells something, and then it actually is sold at the front end by like a grocery store or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, different uh, makers of food and such um, uh, pay for different kinds of product placement, right? Because to actually display something at eye level in a grocery store costs a lot more than to display, you know, have it stuck on like the very bottom shelf or the very top shelf. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But that is something that in those negotiations actually happens between the distributors and the actual manufacturers of the food. And so um, there are auditors that go around and actually take pictures of the various... um, 
you know, grocery store shelves and then um, have to then manually audit and see, okay, is everything, you know, where it's supposed to be according to this contract. And so using machine learning to do that, that's a really interesting computer vision task where inside of computer vision, there's something called object detection. And object detection is trying to recognize something within an image, right? So if, if there was a huge picture of me walking a dog with a Ferris wheel in the background and, mm -hmm. you know, all this other stuff and you wanted to recognize dogs, like it would just be able to pick out, you know, do a little like square right. bounding box around just the dog, right? In that whole big busy image. And so that's something called object detection. So being able to recognize like the food within the image and then where it like, is, is relative. Is it hot dog is a good example of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hot dog, not a hot dog. Oh, yeah, hot dog or not, that's what's going on. Yeah. yeah, hot dog or not a hot dog. Yeah. Why didn't but we when, think when, of that? That was, yeah, that was a different problem though because uh, the hot dog, not a hot dog thing, for those of you who don't know the, the backstory that's that was a really funny episode of silicon valley and you should definitely watch the show silicon yeah. valley because it's fabulous um but what they were doing there was actually a classification problem it wasn't an object detection problem because he was uh taking a picture and the uh, the hot dog or whatever piece of food mm -hmm. it was was the main uh subject of the screen and so that's classification trying to figure out okay mm -hmm. this is either a hot dog or you know if he had done it well hot dog or a piece of pizza or whatever mm -hmm. other kind of food um but in this particular case uh, object detection is actually trying to recognize like a sub piece of the image is something yeah. and, and it's a real app out. too by the way yeah isn't that funny <laughs> and, and i found my kids they were obsessed for a while so they were making well first they were making me do it, and then i told them to just get the app and do it um so they were oh. checking everything whether or not it was hot dog and um what, what's interesting <laughs> I, I i basically figured out it's basically just going off of the amount of the colors that are in the image so if you have something that's uh, like brown yellow and red in the right yeah. proportions yeah. uh it would say yes that's a hot dog Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Did you use fake hot dogs? Like, what kind of test data did you use? Uh, so I mean, they would take pictures like random items, like a like a chip bag or something. Okay. Um, I mean, one obvious one to trick it is to like take a picture of like a brat. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it would say yeah. that it is. Uh, but if you yeah. had like a if you had like a hot dog with like no, with, with like no bun and no ketchup and mustard, I think it would say that it wasn't. Um, depending on the circumstances, obviously. Um, uh, but then if yeah. you took, I don't remember how there was, we had some consistent way of fooling it, um, where it was, it was like, it was like a chip bag or something that had just the right proportions of, of those colors. And it yeah. would say, oh yeah, that's a hot dog. And it looked nothing like a oh, hot dog. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times things like shape and such can factor into. Yeah. Suppose offers a powerful set of file management APIs with which developers can create applications, which can create open edit and save the majority of popular business file formats. Their product range supports a multitude of file formats, including Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents, OneNote, Outlook, Project, Visio files, popular image formats, and many others. Aspose produces APIs for .NET, Java, and the cloud, which can be utilized in almost any modern language available today. Visit Aspose.com for a free 30-day no-limitations trial, and if you get stuck, Message the friendly support team for help. All technical support is offered free of charge. And remember, if you are a lucky winner, you will receive a free developer small business license for Expose.net, a powerful toolkit for working with Word documents in your applications. One of the things that's really a, a challenge in the machine learning community is just when you're using neural nets and kind of that deep learning uh, factors, mm -hmm. the explainability is really difficult. Like what what features or what are the things that are actually making the impact um, on, on getting those results? Mm -hmm. um, they actually, someone, a really funny example is someone actually created um, a neural net to be able to distinguish between dogs and wolves. Mm. And it was actually very, very accurate. The accuracy numbers were, were great. 
right. And it was doing a great job figuring out, okay, this is a dog and this is a wolf. And then someone went and tried to, you know, back figure out, you know, what it was that was actually causing that. And they found that it turned out that whenever there was snow in the background, I was say, yeah, it was, it was a wolf, right? And it, it was just like the, the pictures that they used uh, just happened to show that. And so um, it was always, and it turned out just being the snow, it wasn't actually using anything about the animal itself. Um, yeah. But that was the most telling factor in that particular thing. So it's a good thing to remember when you are doing machine learning, um, just having the right kind of data can make such a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we have our custom vision service now too, which is awesome because you can feed in your own data and it does classification, like being able to figure out, you know, if you had an assembly line, for example, and you wanted to use uh, computer vision to automatically detect, you know, which part is coming down the line or something and potentially do something different with different parts. Um, you could train it to recognize, you know, this is, you know, part A versus part B versus part C. And um, that's, uh, you know, a really cool example of, of using the training. But I always tell people when you're, when you're use, getting training data, make sure you're doing things like um, using uh, diverse backgrounds. Um, so for example, if, you, if I was trying to build a dog versus cat classifier and I had all my dogs with a red background and all my cats with a blue background, then again, it could automatically yeah. just actually build a red versus blue classifier as opposed to that. So you have to think about, you know, different lighting conditions, different things. It's almost like I know it's when lazy, I... you know, think of it as it's, <laughs> it's looking for the laziest way to solve that problem. Right, which is good. That's what it should be doing. Right. I, I, mean, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like find the find the fastest, easiest, simplest way to differentiate between two things. Um, but when you think about it, that's how we do it as humans, right? You you have this series of like images in your head. Like one of the things that the cognitive services does is predict um, age. Mm-hmm. Um, you give it a picture of a face, and it will tell you you know how old it is. And when you think about that, it, it's it's processing it the same way that that humans do, where you have this mental model in your head over time, where you learn various you know, people and, and faces and you know their age or their approximate age. And so you build this mapping in your head of, okay, this face is about this old and this face is about that old. And that's really what a machine learning model is doing too, is it has yep. all this historical training data, all these faces with ages mapped to them. And then over, t- it's able to build a model as well saying, okay, now for a new face I've never seen before, based on what I've learned, um, here's how, what I think that is or how, um, mm-hmm. how old I think that person is. Yeah. That actually, so it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. That's a good lead into my next question, which is around accuracy. Yeah, right. So, yeah. I mean, I, there's I, there's a whole bunch of, of questions I have around accuracy because like you, you were just talking about, you know, visually determining how old somebody is. And like, I know that uh, um, like my accuracy is very low. Yeah, mine <laughs> and, too. <laughs> and the, uh, you know, so the, the computer, I mean... I always, anytime I do anything with machine learning, it's like, Hey, we have this, uh, this data that we're using to train and maybe we have a thousand records. We have a thousand faces and we have the ages. And then what's interesting is whenever you go to test it, like you throw one more image at it, but it it seems kind of weird to me because doesn't, doesn't the training set of a thousand kind of, you can figure out the accuracy from that. Right. Or like, how, how does that work? Whenever you, yeah. whenever you throw like the neck, the, thou, the, the one after the thousand, like what does that yeah. do? Yeah. Yeah. So typically if you're going to train, um, based on like kind of the law of large numbers, like assuming you have a ton of data mm-hmm. um, and such, um, a typical like kind of industry standard for the split would be to use 70% of your labeled data set for the training mm-hmm. and then test with 30% of your data. So it shouldn't be just like a thousand images and then test with one and then boom, there's my accuracy number. Yeah. You should, um, like if you have okay. a, a, a data set, you use like typically 70% for training. So you do use the majority. Use like a uh, or brand use 30. 30%. Yeah. And th- yep. And, and that's works if you 
you have the law of Nernst numbers and you can assume that it's like a random distribution. If you don't, a lot of times there's other there's something else called k-fold um, k cross-validation. And so you choose some k. So let's say k is 10. And then I would take my whole labeled data split sit and um, split it up into 10 chunks. Mm -hmm. And then I would build a model with nine of the 10 chunks and then use the remaining one to test. And then I would build another model with a different nine chunks and then use the 10th to check and then repeat that like 10 times. So you're doing, you know, you keep validating um, and then you can kind of build, find the best model um, and the best distribution of the data um, based on that technique. So that's another okay. thing that people have done. But your overall question is really good. Like, how do you know, like what accuracy is good enough and, and that sort of thing? And that's a hard question. Um, and it really, the, the, the answer is unfortunately the, the horrible architect's answer of it depends. <laughs> it really does depend on the problem you're trying to solve. Because if it's something like, um, I'm trying to predict whether this person will click on an ad or not, you know, whatever. If you can predict it right 75% of the time, great. You're right. doing, you know, you're probably doing better than whatever. Um, it's not one of those things. But um, one of the first job opportunities I got uh, when I was first graduating from school, I was deciding between um, a number of different companies. But the two top ones for me were um, Microsoft, which I ended up taking, and then um, working for MIT Lincoln Laboratories. And the problem they wanted me to solve was around um, uh anti-ballistic missiles. So I don't know if, I did not know anything about this, so here's my understanding of the problem. <laughs> but um, people, you know, sometimes use ballistic missiles and try to fire uh, missiles at us. And there is something called an anti-ballistic missile. And what it does is it goes and it blows up the missile um, before it hits us. Um, but what can happen in a warfare uh, situation is that sometimes companies, um, it's really, you know, a, an actual missile is expensive, but you can fire dummy missiles that actually don't have a payload in front Mm. Um, at a at a country, and then if you use um, anti ballistic missiles, you're using up very expensive anti ballistic missiles that can choose these to to blow up essentially what would be duds, like not mm -hmm. real missiles that are coming at you. And so what they wanted me to do was uh, use my machine learning background to build an algorithm to figure out if a missile is coming towards you, figure out whether it is a real missile or a fake missile, and then only fire the anti ballistic missile if it is a real missile. And that's something where you need a very, very high accuracy. <laughs> if you are going to be happy, no if pressure. you are wrong, people die, right? Yeah. Um, and same thing with some of these medical situations. If you're trying, you're creating an algorithm to predict whether or not someone has developed cancer, like yeah. you need to be very accurate. Yeah. So um, it, it's really an, an it depends question um, based on the different uh, the, what what how it's going to be used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I don't know much. I want to drill into into more accuracy questions, but you know, like one that, that I hear all the time, I always hear like, Oh, this, uh, uh, this algorithm for detecting spam is more accurate than humans. <laughs> like when, <laughs> when somebody makes that claim, like what, what does that actually mean? And, and, cause how would we know? <laughs> like, yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing what they did is just, um, surveyed a whole bunch of humans and then developed an average rate or something okay, like so that. So here, here's your I average human, which is probably, probably depressing. So, okay. Yeah, maybe. I know <laughs> we, we did a similar thing because Microsoft actually just beat, it was very exciting, uh, uh, XD and his team actually beat the human transcriber error rate right. um, when, yeah, this was really, really cool in terms of speech de uh, recognition. And this is a goal a lot of companies have been working at for a long time. Um, so I believe um, a professionally trained 
uh, human transcriber who is listening to stuff mm. and transcribing it has a word error rate of approximately uh, 5.6%, I believe it was. Jeez. And so that's been like the golden standard is can mm. we get an algorithm that is better than 5.6% um, <laughs> word error rate? Because that would beat uh, human transcription, um, the very best human transcribers. And uh, Actually, I think it was like December of last year or something. XD and his team actually did it and were able to beat uh, the human transcribing rate, uh, word error rate uh, for the very first time. So it was really exciting, really exciting stuff to see that. But I assume that was calculated, uh, you know, with a, a fair, hopefully statistically large enough sample size of human transcribers and then seeing what their word, the average word error rate was yeah, for them. Yeah, that was very cool. So, yeah. I'll go ahead. Go ahead. I have a question. So, so now that now that we're kind of like all jazzed up on machine learning, we're all yeah. excited. We want to do it everywhere, right? <laughs> what 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 is the hello world of machine learning? What does that look like, and how can oh I get started? Goodness. I can tell you exactly what it looks like. It looks like irises, my friend. It looks like irises. So there's um, it's a kind of a joke in the machine learning uh, community. There's a couple of very famous data sets um, that are used uh, with schools and training and such that like everybody is very familiar with. Um, one of them is the the MNIST um, handwritten digits uh, set. And so it's a collection of a whole bunch of things. Like think of the post office and how when they're processing mail that has all these handwritten like zip codes on them, how do they distinguish, you know, where that should be routed? And so being able to recognize um, a handwritten digit, like a handwritten, like an image essentially of a zero or one or two and be able to map that to a digital understanding that that is a one or a two or whatever. Um, and so there's a very famous data set of all these handwritten numbers. Uh, and so that is one thing that's used very commonly and as a hello world type exercise. And then another one is there's a very famous iris data set. And iris is a kind of flower. And so you can distinguish between, I think it's three different types of irises um, based on um, the length of the petal and the width of the petal and several other features of what the, what the flower looks like. And so those are oftentimes used as data in the very hello world um, examples of, okay, let's take this famous data set and see if I can predict which number this new handwritten digit is or which uh, kind of iris this is based on this information. And one really, so there's a whole bunch of great online resources you can use. Um, Coursera, um, the online um, uh, massive, what is it, massively online uh, uh, curriculum that was mm -hmm. created by uh, Andrew Ning and his team is one really good resource. Uh, they actually founded that company with Andrew Ning's um, machine learning course, and he is a he's a professor at Stanford, and he does a great job of explaining machine learning kind of end to end. And so that's a great thing if you want to kind of learn all of the math behind it and that sort of thing. Um, Andrew Ning's uh, Coursera course, and I think he's also doing uh, deeplearning.ai now as well. Um, and he he explains things in a very easy to understand way. So that's one great resource. Um, another resource, if you learn by doing, is Kaggle. I love Kaggle. So it's Kaggle. K-A-G-G-L-E. Kaggle. Okay. And what Kaggle does is is um, if you want to practice machine learning, you really need two things, right? You need a cool problem to solve and you need data to solve it with. And the thing that's amazing about Kaggle is it gives you both. Like it gives you, here's all these really interesting problems. Um, and it, it's a competition. They have a competition site. So basically uh, companies can actually pay to put their stuff up there and essentially crowdsource out some of oh, their hard cool. machine learning problems. Yeah. It's really cool. And there's cash prizes. Like I know uh, Yelp has done uh, some and Microsoft has done it and Google and uh, Netflix recommendation stuff. 
So there's all these really cool data science machine learning problems that get put up there. And then you can go and they give you the data. So you just can download this data. There's actually one with the TSA right now, uh, which is kind of interesting. Like TSA help us, you know, fight terrorism yeah. better. Um, and there's a TSA data set in there, which is a little kind of scary. Um, but like you can get access to all these really cool data sets and then just practice machine learning with them and see how well can you do. And there's a leaderboard so you can submit your work and, um, you know, see how well you stack up against other people. So I highly recommend Kaggle because it's a great way to just like get started. And it's a very supportive community. There's like forums and stuff where people can uh, ask questions and that sort of thing. So that's really wonderful in terms of uh, getting started by learn by doing because that, that's how I learn best. Anyway, I need to actually write some code and then be like, exactly. OK, I think I get this now. Right. <laughs> exactly. It internalizes it better. Uh, so yeah. those are two resources. And then, of course, Microsoft has a number of really good resources. We have a, um, a data science certification now. Uh, so there's an actual like sort certification that you can get from Microsoft around data science. And then there's a whole bunch of great tools that we have. Um, and what I love about Microsoft is that there's so many, like we can kind of meet you at wherever you're at on your machine learning journey. There's the cognitive services, which is if you just want to kind of consume machine learning stuff uh, and you don't actually want to build it yourself, there's the cognitive services. And those have taken common artificial intelligence type problems like facial detection and um, uh, speech, uh, um, common speech things, speech to text and text to speech speech and speaker recognition and um, emotion detection and computer vision, uh, rec you know, given this image, tell me what it is, and um, various types of natural language processing um, and text analytics, finding the sentiment of text, finding, um, extracting out the key phrases, like all of those kind of things that people want to do over and over and over again. And they've built those services for you. And then you just basically call a REST endpoint so you can do it from yeah, any language, any platform, cool. super easy. Yeah. And then just use it. So that's one thing if you want to, you know, just use that. And then, um, we also have the Azure Machine Learning Studio, which is what I used for the the EEG project, um, and that's uh, you know a browser based thing where mm -hmm. you can drag and drop in you know twenty five different machine learning algorithms and and utilize those. And then we also have um, kind of the new wave of machine learning projects that um, kind of add on to that, which are um, our what was coded in Project Vienna are. Um, uh, the Azure Machine Learning Workbench, as well as the Visual Studio Tools for AI, and then two new services inside of Azure, which are the Experimentation Service and the Model Management Service. And those um, are really great resources, too, that if you're already doing a lot of Python work and stuff like that, um, you can roll your stuff into those and use the same frameworks and stuff that you're already comfortable using. And it helps with, it makes it really easy to deploy. Like, you can basically take the models that you build and package them up into Docker containers and then either, you know, do your training on GPUs or locally and just kind of a mix of different deployment options and all kinds of stuff. So um, that's a really great uh, tool to have in your tool belt as well. And then finally, we also have an open source deep learning framework. So if you want to do like, um, it's very similar to Google's uh, TensorFlow, which is open sourced. We have the Cognitive Toolkit uh, or formerly called the CNTK, which is also um, open sourced. So you can contribute to it if you want, but that's a great thing for if you want to do it, it's specific to deep learning. So if you want to solve a deep learning problem, um, you need a lot of data to do it, but it's it's um, a really good uh, a really good way to experiment with that, um, and it's open source and uh, free for anyone to use. So it's so many options, yeah. and all of them have different like different tutorials and stuff like that. Yeah. Based on kind of that's what I was going to ask you about because I found, you know, it seems to be like way. I mean, the, the, while the stuff has gotten more complex and like the the thought the thinking in the field has has progressed, also the 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 tools that. Uh, make it easy for beginners or, or people to just 
don't really know how to do machine learning. Like, you know, I've been able to use the cognitive services API. Um, You know, I was in a hack recently where, you know, they were doing um, like a live video call type of thing. And they said, hey, we want to analyze the emotion of the people that are in this call. And I don't know, it was like an hour and a half of work and I hadn't touched any of it before. Yeah, and it's done. Yeah, I was basically taking screenshots, you know, sending them in there and then it would give me back, you know, this JSON document that had the emotion data. And it was it was really cool. So so easy to get started now, which is which is really cool. That is awesome. Very cool. Okay, let's move on to the pick of the week, which is uh, use Azure DNS service to provide Azure, sorry, Azure DNS to provide custom domain settings for Azure services. So basically, uh, for Azure Functions, for IoT Hub, for a whole bunch of the different services, now you can actually use custom DNS records, which is really nice because you basically get to use like a vanity URL on these. So you can, you know, they use the Contoso example um, where you can basically have, you know, Contoso.com addresses assigned to all of your different services. Um, so if somebody starts poking around your stuff or monitoring traffic or whatever, uh, they'll actually see your domain names on there instead of the you know, sort of generic Azure names. Uh, the other nice thing about this is that you are, you know, if you're using IoT Hub, for example, and you're sending data into there, um, some people like to have these uh, uh, warm and fuzzy response or the, these uh, warm and fuzzies that, uh, um, you know, the the place that they're sending their data can be, you know, they have control over it and they can swap it out if they need to, if uh, if they're not happy with the service or or whatever. So a lot of people were asking for this and it's great to see this implemented in here now. And then Jennifer, we play a game on this show. It's for kids, but you know, we like to play Uh-oh. it here. So why don't you pick a number between one and four inclusive and let me know okay. what it is. Okay. Got it. You want, you want to yeah, know? Yeah. Three. Three. <clears throat> Let's see. Everybody picks three. I'm almost out of threes. I might be out of threes. Do you have a second choice? I might have to, two. I, might, I might have to remove three. Okay. So two here, yeah, uh, two. that was taken. Okay. Man, I'm really running out. Okay, hold on, hold on. Here we go. <laughs> Would you rather turn into a fly or turn into a cockroach? <laughs> so I don't know the average life expectancy of a cockroach. I know flies only live for like two days or something, right? And then they die, I feel like. I think that's, Isn't that true? I, I think that's like a myth. I think I think they have a really short life. Yeah. Um, well, here, let me, so let me I'm not sure. And cockroaches, do they like... I'm, I'm not sure if I understand the life. Then again, do I want life as a cockroach? Is another thing. Yeah. What's the so they got the nuclear life, thing. Really? So you know, if yeah, that's true. War, you yeah, got a good chance like of living. You could survive anything. Um, you can live in New York um, in my sister's apartment very easily. <laughs> um, but the uh, the other thing is, if you were a fly, you could fly, and cockroaches can't fly. Yeah. So they flies like, generally live for 15 to 25 days. 15 to 25. Okay, I was and wrong. Cockroaches on that. Was, live up to a year. Live up to a year. Okay. So I would have a longer life as a cockroach, um, but I would be able to fly as a fly. Yeah, you could go wherever. Mm, yeah, I could go. I could travel. And you probably don't have cockroaches where you live, right? So, like. No, I don't. We don't would, have cockroaches you here. Stick out like I, a sore I, thumb. So uh, that means uh, if you're a terrible. cockroach, you live in a nice area, you know, that nice temperate climate, too. Oh, is that how this works? Hmm. Is it? No, because you turn fly- into it, though, Carl. Well, so you're like, yeah. you know, you're just minding your own business. And then, so, so, so if boom. you turn into it in the middle of January, that might suck. I know. I was yeah, thinking that too. It's true. 
That's true. Well, it sucks either um, way. This is, yeah, there's really yeah. There, this is there's not a lot of like options. I'm so I'm first of all I'm really glad I'm a human, and I would like to take that choice first, please. Um, if I get a choice, but if I have to choose between one of those it's not two, a choice. I think um, I don't know. I, well, I, I, I really I really I would say cockroach just because it's a longer life and more resilient and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. I was originally thinking cockroach, but just the ability to fly. Would be really cool. So I'm, yeah. I'm, like, fly is really compelling too. And you could, if, though, it, if it's winter, you could yeah. go outside and like freeze yourself and then come back in the summer. That's an option. Mm, that is an option. That, that is, does I'd work. Have a, I'd have to be a maggot, right? Aren't aren't yeah. they? Don't they start yeah. as little maggots? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For a friend of mine, he would like <laughs> freeze flies and they would be frozen, and then he'd take them out and they'd be fine. So wow. I'm just saying. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm glad we have a plan, guys. Let's do this thing. Okay. We're, we're ready. <laughs> let's execute the. Wait. No, let's not. <laughs> okay. Perfect. And Carl, pick a number. I'll take the next available one since, <laughs> next available. since we're running low. Uh, I'll take the previous available one here. Uh, would you rather place first in the Olympics and have the gold medal taken away from you one year later or win second place but you get to keep your medal forever? N- nobody remembers the the guy who came in second and then got it late. Well, that's why you have I'm gonna, the medal. I, I'm I, yeah. That's I'd, I'd rather have it. You have the notoriety. I mean that that's why you do that. Not, Wait. So which one are you picking? The the gold. The the gold that oh, yeah. gets taken away. Yeah. Exactly. But, but <laughs> I'm assuming you did something very very bad to get it taken away though. No, they just came in your house and just took it. No, you oh, have, you have photos. Okay. No, it I don't, like I don't know. All this no. The like card doesn't say. I'm just making this up. I have no idea. Okay, okay. As <laughs> long know, as you don't more, have to like more questions. Do something bad to get your f- first place medal like taken away. Yeah, like oh geez, yeah, you know, it turns out you were on drugs or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what do they what do they call that when they uh um with the blood that that's like everybody does blood it. Testing? No, Doping? no, no, doping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, they're, they've been taking like away uh, Olympic medals, like going back like 15 years now. Yeah. So like, you know, like, I mean, you can get one taken away from like 15 years ago because of like they redo the blood test. So that's interesting question. Okay. They kept the blood for 15 years of former yeah. Olympic athletes. Wow. I didn't realize that. Okay. Anyway. So uh, Jennifer, where, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> yeah, where, where, great show guys. Yeah. We're going to keep your blood on file. <laughs> Uh, but for anybody who wants more information about you, non-blood related, uh, where can people find you? Um, I do have a blog and I'm on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. I'm going to have to check out this new uh, resume creating function. Um, but uh, my Twitter is uh, Jennifer Marsman, all one word. And okay. then my blog is blogs.msdn.microsoft.com slash Jennifer. <laughs> Which is awesome. Okay. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash So Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about some really awesome machine learning scenarios. Thank you for having me.